On March 24, 1968, a woman died. This lady had wrote and directed more than 400 films, both shorts and features, and even owned her own studio. She was as important to the birth of film as many well-known names, or even more so, because she was the first to create films with a narrative structure. Once her career ended, she spent the autumn years of her life watching her name slowly disappear from the history of motion pictures. She couldn't even find copies of her work. Her name was Alice Guy Blachet, and this is her story. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to another episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the first Monday of the month, and that means a Film history lesson. In the past, we've talked about some of the great innovators in cinema history, and but in this case, it's one of those people that have been largely forgotten. Now, before I begin, I want to warn you that today's subject is about a person who is French. Therefore, there are many French names that I am forced to pronounce. I don't speak French. I'll do my best, but in advance, I apologize. And, you know, I've heard her name pronounced Elise-ski, but I'm just going to say Alice, so I hope that's okay. You've probably heard of George Melies, D.W. Griffith, Sir J. Eisenstein, Carl Theodore Dreyer, Fritz Lang, and F.W. Moreau. What do all these filmmakers have in common? Why, they're all men, of course. Can you think of one film pioneer that's female? There are quite a few, believe it or not. And one of these was Alice Guy Blachet. How important was she? Well, Alfred Hitchcock once said about his early influences, I'd be over the moon with Frenchmen like George Melies. I was thrilled by the movies of D.W. Griffith and the early French director Alice Guy. The question, I guess, when it comes to Alice's place in film history is, what makes a person a filmmaker? The question isn't as simple as it seems. Can we call a person who points a camera at a train pulling into a station a filmmaker? Well, I guess in the loosest sense of the word, we can. But in my opinion, a filmmaker is someone who uses the medium of motion pictures to create art, to tell stories or perhaps provide a point of view. If so, then today's subject, one could argue, wasn't the first female director, but the first filmmaker, period. Alice once said, There is nothing connected with the staging of a motion picture that a woman cannot do as easily as a man, and there's no reason she cannot master every technicality of the art. In the arts of acting, painting, music, and literature, Women have long held their place among the most successful workers, and when it is considered how vitally these arts enter into the production of a motion picture, 
one wonders why the names of scores of women are not found among the most successful creators of photodrama offerings. That being said, how many females can you mention that directed films before 1980? Originally from France, Emile Guy lived with his wife Marie and their four children in San Diego, Chile, where he was the owner of a bookstore and publishing company. Due to a devastating smallpox epidemic in Chile, the family moved back to Paris where a fifth child was born on July 1, 1873, Alice Ida Antoinette Guy. Now her older siblings were all born and raised in Chile, so Alice's mother was determined that this child be raised as French. When Alice was still a baby, her father returned to Chile and her mother soon followed, leaving Alice in the care of her grandmother. By the time she was four, she was back in South America. In her memoirs, she described the voyage between South America and France as an adventure of seven weeks in a comfortless boat. She asked the question, what motive could have made my parents exile themselves in that way? To be honest, I thought of that as well. By the time she was six, she was back in France to attend a Catholic boarding school called Faithful Companions of Jesus, where her two older sisters had already attended. Alice had friends in the theater, and when she brought up the idea of being an actress to her father, he responded, no, never, and that, I'd rather see you dead. <laughs> I think that was a general attitude back then, that acting in the theater was considered not a very good way of making a living. Anyway, around the time she was 11, somewhere around 1884, things started to go wrong for the family. Due to a series of violent earthquakes, fires, and thefts, her father's bookstore chain went bankrupt. Alice was transferred to a cheaper boarding school, and her other sisters were quickly married. And then her 17-year-old brother died of rheumatic fever, and then her father also passed away. He was only 51, and Alice said he died more broken by sorrow than illness. That left Alice and her mother together. By the time she was 20, she had been trained as a typist and a stenographer. This was a new profession and one of the few available for women in the 19th century. Alice took a job as a secretary for a company that sold varnishing products. But one day she got a note from her stenography professor informing her that a company called Comptoir General Photography in Paris was seeking a new secretary. A nice letter of recommendation was included. She was thrilled with this new opportunity and entered the building hoping to be interviewed by the owner, Felix Max Richards, but to her disappointment, he was out. Instead, she was sent to the office of Leon Gromont. The large man looked up from his desk and said, What do you wish, mademoiselle? Timidly, she handed him the letter of recommendation. After reading it, Gromont said, this recommendation is excellent, but this post is important. I fear, mademoiselle, that you may be too young. Her hopes for this new position began to crumble, but then she pleaded, But sir, I'll get over that. Grimont smiled. Alas, that's true, he said. You shall get over it. Well, let's try. He gave her a quick test and then offered her a job starting the next day. It was for more money than she was making at her previous job. 
she ran home to the little apartment her and her mother shared and told her mother the good news. She couldn't possibly have known it, but not only was this a better job, but it would eventually lead to a whole new career. Over time at the company, her salary and responsibilities quickly increased. Now, Leon Ernest Grumont was a French inventor, engineer, and industrialist who, from a very early age, was interested in the new field of photography. He was thrilled to be offered a job by Felix Max Richards. This was really a fortunate move because two years later, he acquired the company after Felix Max Richards was forced to sell due to a court decision over a patent that went against him. He partnered with astronomer Joseph Vallou, the famous engineer Gustav Eiffel, and the financier Alfred Besnier. It was renamed the Gumont Film Company. One day, George's Demi stopped by the office. He was a nervous but well-bred man who began showing them one of his inventions. He called it the phonoscope, which, on a glass disc, were a series of images. When projected, those images gave the illusion of movement and even showed the changing of facial expressions. I'm thinking that his phonoscope was a lot like Edward Maybridge's Zuprastoscope. Gumont was very interested in this new device. But soon after, he heard that two brothers named Lumiere were giving a demonstration of their new device in the basement of the Grand Café. At the time, Gumont had been working on his own motion picture invention called the Chronophotographic. Alaski called his invention a good second in comparison to what the Lumiere brothers had done. One problem was that Gumont was using 60mm film, which caused great problems. Having had attended the Lumiere event on March 22, 1895, Alice began to see film's potential. This new art form could be more than workmen leaving a factory or trains pulling into a station. As crazy as it sounds, it could incorporate fictional storytelling elements. She asked Gumont for permission to make her own film, and he approved. The one condition he put on this new venture was that it did not interfere with her secretarial duties. She wrote in her biography, If the future development of motion picture had been foreseen at the time, I should have never obtained his consent. My youth, my inexperience, my sex all conspired against me. The first film she made was The Fairies of the Cabbages. Now, the specifications of the 1896 film are a little sketchy, as the original version appears to have been lost, but Guy remade this film at least twice in 1900 and 1902. It is said the original was about 60 seconds long and contains a honeymooning couple, a farmer, pictures of a baby glued to cardboard, and one live baby. It was based on an old popular French fairy tale in which baby boys are born in cabbages and baby girls are born in roses. Most consider this to be the first film with a narrative. The film was very successful and she continued to make more. She made six films in 1896, 17 in 1897, 17 more in 1898, and 20 in 1899. Soon, Goumont made her head of film production at the company. And as time went on, she discovered all the tricks a camera could do, like running the film backwards to show reverse motion, or slowing down or speeding up the film, or stopping the film to make things magically appear. She also was one of the first to use close-ups of an actor, although she rarely gets credit, and she played with hand-tinting the film to create color, 
and more importantly, used film to explore many social issues. She did a ton of films with great success, but soon many others were doing the same, creating little stories on film. But Alice kept innovating, even experimenting with sound. Alison Goumont invented a system to sync up a record with film. They would make the record first and then have the actors lip sync to the record. They called the system the chronophone, and Alice directed more than 100 films with this new system. Following her lead, by 1904, people like Edwin Porter, Georges Melez, and Ferdinand Zecca for Pathé were making narrative films. There's a story that after Ferdinand Zecca was fired from Pathé, he was discovered by Alice Guy selling soap on the streets. She hired him as her assistant. He worked for her for about two weeks and was even allowed to direct a couple of films. But as soon as Pathé discovered that Zecca was working for the rival, they quickly hired him back. In 1906, Alice Guy created her most ambitious project yet. It was called The Birth, The Life, and The Death of Christ, often referred to just as The Passion. It was 33 minutes long and tells the life of Jesus Christ based on the canonical Gospels. She used 25 sets as well as numerous exterior locations and over 300 extras. She faced many problems while creating this film and it went way over budget. But luckily for her, the film was a huge success, almost a blockbuster. By now, Guy's films represented nearly 40% of Goumont's profits and afforded them to build a large film studio. Her life changed in 1907. She met a man working for Goumont called Herbert Blaché, whom she soon married. And at the time they were married, Leon Goumont had plans to send Herbert to the USA, to Cleveland, to start a Goumont chronophone franchise in the United States. Alice Guy, of course, wanted to be with her new husband, so she resigned her position as head of Goumont's film production and headed off to America. In less than a year, the franchise failed, so Goumont made Herbert manager of his New York studios in Flushing, Queens. At the time, Goumont had an agreement with the Edison Company and other members of the Motion Picture Patents Company, or MPPC. The MPPC was an attempt by Edison to control the entire motion picture business in America and to eliminate independent and foreign filmmakers. At the time, Edison was developing his own synchronized sound system with a device he called the Kintoscope. And the big difference between Edison's sound system and Goumont's was Edison recorded his sound while filming so his actors would have to speak into large horned microphones. Goumont had the sound recorded first with the actors lip-syncing to the audio. The problem with Edison was he didn't take competition lightly, and both sound systems conflicted with one another, so Goumont's many applications for formal membership in the MPPC were rejected. The New York studios were soon out of business. At the same time, Alice and Herbert had their first child, a daughter, Simone, who was born in 1908. So now the New York offices were unused, and Alice decided to take advantage by starting her own company, which she called Solex. Solex films were distributed by Goumont through George Klein's distribution company. Klein had been another cinema pioneer whose patent disputes with Thomas Edison was one of the reasons he established the Motion Picture Patent Company. 
And since Gumat wasn't part of the MPPC monopoly, distributions for Solex Films were done on an independent basis. They had to negotiate distribution on a state-by-state basis. But they were very successful, and by 1911, the Blachets were living in their own large home and built a $100,000 studio in Fort Lee, New Jersey. For those who don't know, before there was Hollywood, the film industry was in New Jersey. The new studio was state-of-the-art. It had carpentry shops, prop rooms, dressing rooms, five stage sets, labs, darkrooms, and projection rooms. The studio's grounds were sculpted to accommodate an abundance of landscapes. Famously, hanging in the studio, he had a large sign. It just said, Be Natural, a direction to all the actors. Soon the couple welcomed a second child, a boy named Reginald. And for the four of them, it seemed like things were going good in America. Solux made all types of films, like melodramas, action films, and comedies. And in many of their action films, the heroes were female characters. And often marriages were emphasized as an equal partnership. She made stars of such actors as Darwin Carr, Blanche Cornwall, and Vinnie Burns. Now, she directed more than 450 films in her career, so there's way too many to go into here. Some of the notables were A Comedy of Errors, The Detective and His Dog, both from 1912, The Roads That Lead Home, The Pit and the Pendulum, Matrimony Speed Limit, Greater Love Hath No Man, and Dick Whittington and His Cat, all from 1913. Her films were revolutionary. Many of them had male and female gender roles completely reversed. Men are doing the housework while women are sitting around smoking cigars. One delightful comedy called Sticky Women is about a maid licking posted stamps, her mouth getting all covered with glue. A mustached man watches her getting more and more turned on with each lick she takes. Eventually, not being able to take it anymore, he grabs and kisses her, and their mouths stick together. When they finally are separated, much of his facial hair is now on her face. One remarkable film is called Falling Leaves from 1912. In it, a young girl, maybe five or six years old, hears a doctor tell her mother that her older sister, who is gravely ill, will die before the last leaves of autumn fall. The young girl, hoping to extend her sister's life, attempts to put falling leaves back on the trees. She also directed the first film with all black actors, called The Fool and His Money. It's the story of a man whom everybody thinks is a fool, but that changes when he finds a large amount of money. But when the money's gone, he has to go back to his old life, and people think he's a fool once again. Many of her films focus on sexual equalities, as you can imagine. And by 1913, she moved into feature films, as the days of the shorts were coming to an end. Herbert then formed another company, Blaché Features, Inc., which used the same studios and actors as Solex. It seemed Herbert suddenly wanted to be a director himself. So both Alice and Herbert were directing at this point, not only for their own companies, but often would take directing work for other studios. 
Alice was known for giving a lot of other directors chances, too. One of those was known as Miss Smalley, whose real name was Lois Weber. The film industry was rapidly changing, and this brought things to an end. The biggest change was that the industry was moving to the West Coast to use the fantastic sun and the year-round good weather. It was also trying to escape the Edison Trust monopoly on distribution. World War I took its toll on the film industry as well, and French-run companies like Goumont retreated from the U.S. Alice Guy began working more as a director for hire with a lot less control over the productions. It was a time when the money people were moving in and taking over the business. The days of the art and craft of making films took a backseat to the money. The Solex Studios began renting space for other film studios to shoot, but with the industry quickly moving to Hollywood, that didn't last for long. Herbert left as well, leaving Alice and the kids back in New York. Alice learned that Herbert and Louis Weber were having an affair. It turned out that he was a womanizer. The problem for Alice was, for some reason, she felt she needed Herbert by her side. There were other problems as well. Herbert had made huge investments that turned out disastrous. Their film company ended up in bad debt, and then there was a fire at Solex, which made things worse. In 1920, she was making a film called Tarnished Reputations when she came down with influenza. Herbert invited her and the kids to California to recuperate. But once there, the couple lived in separate apartments. Tarnished Reputations would be her last film. She attempted to make a film with the American social activist, feminist, and birth control advocate Rose Pastor Stokes about Planned Parenthood. They wrote the script together and called it Shall the Parents Decide? The idea was for it to premiere at Margaret Stanger's birth control clinic. Margaret Sanger devoted her whole life to legalizing birth control and making it universally available for all women. But Margaret was arrested the day the clinic opened and the film never happened. I would have to assume that we've entered the darkest time in Alice Guy's life. She was divorced, Solex went bankrupt, and all her assets were auctioned off. She had nothing left and decided it was time to go home. She went back to France. And for the next few years, she attempted to find work as a director, but never found any. She wrote in a letter, People don't want to hire white-haired women. After living in America, I am forgotten. In the film business, as the money people moved in, women were being forced out. For Alice, who by now had heavy debts, she found there was little chance of finding any work in the film business. Herbert, on the other hand, was directing films in Hollywood, but he was not paying Alice her alimony. It must have been sad for her over the years to watch her name be forgotten, with many of her films being credited to other filmmakers. When books and articles were written about the first female directors, her name was rarely mentioned. Even when articles were published about Goumont films, she is absent or her importance downplayed. When George Sadlow published his book, The Pioneers of Cinema, he credited Alice for a film she did not direct, and worse than that, 
credited her assistant director as the director of The Passion of Christ, and an actor as the director of her first film, The Cabbage Fairy. And while it's easy to say that she was forgotten because she was a woman, and that was a large part of it, it is also because many of her films were lost. In an interview in 1964, Alice said that she doesn't have any of her films and didn't know where to find them. In her later years, she lectured about her films and spent a lot of time looking for her lost ones. Sadly, she was only able to find two films and part of a third. She wrote her memoirs but couldn't find a publisher. She died on March 24, 1968 at the age 94. Her memoirs were not published until nine years later. Since then, many people have gone on a quest to locate Alice's films, and many of them have been rediscovered. Slowly but surely, people are realizing that the history of film, written mostly by men, have been ignoring her and other women for a long time. Well, I'm certainly grateful for this magnificent washout, a turnout, and uh, now I'd like to say a few words. Hello? I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. La la. For my sake, you must stay. If you should go away, you'd spoil this party. I am through. I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay the summer through. But I am telling you, I must be a little bit before I go. Now, I wrote most of this before watching the 2018 documentary film Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blaché by Pamela B. Green. Now, I did add more details to my story as I watched and thought I should be up front about that. Now, it's a very good film, but I do have a slight problem with it. It's something I've seen in other documentaries, and that's where the, the maker of the film not only tells the story of the subject, but tells the story of their making of the documentary. And I get it, it's hard to make a film like that, tracking down information and people. But the film should be about the subject, not about you. That being said, it's still a very good film, and... I think it needs to be watched by anyone who has an interest in film and film history. It's on the Curiosity Channel right now. Also, many of Guy's films are on YouTube, and they should be watched. One last thing, I'm sorry about the absence of Nancy today. Nancy just got a little busy this week, and uh, life got in the way. She'll be back next week, and we miss you, Nancy. Next week, we'll be talking about one of my favorite films, the Marx Brothers' second feature, Animal Crackers, from 1930. I hope you'll join us. Now listen up. We have a Facebook page. You should join it right now. You should leave a comment. You should recommend a film. You should say hi. Also, I have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. And remember, I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. You can use Facebook, Twitter, or you can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid being all one word. You can even email me just to say hi. And if you could leave a review, hopefully a good one, 
at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in seven days with our thoughts on the Marx Brothers film Animal Crackers. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can.